Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. Wait, am I on? Happy New Year. It's great to have you all. Um, yeah, a lot of good things to, uh, to praise God for that uh, Sarah had talked about. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's great to see you all uh, today. And uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. And uh, you can use one of those. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home as our gift to you. We also have notes uh, that go along with today's message on the communion tables around the room. And uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app, a Bible app called Uversion. Click on More, click on Events. It'll bring us up by GPS, has all of the announcements, as well as all of the notes uh, that'll go along with today's message. Uh, my name's Eric, and I am one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be with you today. It's been, it's been a long time, so I'd like to ask you to join me for the reading of God's Word by standing, and we'll get started. This is Psalm 103, verses 1 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for bringing us here today. Lord, as we... Uh, emerge into this new year. We think about this past year, and for so many it's been a challenge. It's been a struggle, Lord, and we've seen your faithfulness. We've seen your, your goodness and your greatness and your grace to so many of us. And Lord, even as we stand here today, um, some of us are dealing with uncertainties, Lord, and I pray that you might encourage us today to praise you in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of the challenges, that we may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are good, that you're great, that you're gracious, and that you have set your love on us from before the foundation of the world. So today, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, and that you would be glorified in each of us here this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So, uh, we've just spent the last 15 or 16 weeks, maybe, journeying through the Songs of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through 134. And we were reminded of what that just, uh, journey of discipleship actually looks like. And we summarized all of that last week, so I'm not going to go through that again this morning. But you can listen to it online if you had missed that. Today, though, we're going to be looking at a psalm that would have been sung after the ascent to Jerusalem. So just when you thought we were done with the songs, well, we kind of are, but this is what happens right after uh, the ascent to Jerusalem. It's a psalm that encourages true worship in which praise is the inevitable expression of a relationship with the living God, with the creator of the universe. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 135. If you're using an element Bible, it's page 334. And as we get into it, we don't know who wrote Psalm 135, but Psalm 135 naturally follows the songs of ascent, and it was composed to be sung by all of God's people that had arrived in Jerusalem for the festivals or for the feast of Passover and of Pentecost and of Tabernacles and those who worshiped in the temple, in the house of God. 
And this psalm would have been a reminder of who had delivered them and from what he had delivered them. And rather than an original composition, uh, it's a compilation of God's great and gracious acts and his deeds for his people taken from other parts of the scripture. And they would have been reminded of the abundant reasons that they have for praising and for blessing the name of the Lord and that our God is worthy of all praise. Now, King David, who is a gifted songwriter, as we read uh, just a minute ago, in verse 2 of Psalm 103, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Because forgetfulness is, all, is far too common for us as God's people, who have been blessed with grace upon grace from a great and a loving God. And it can lead us to one of the enemies of praise, and that is ingratitude. Because if we're not sufficiently grateful for who the Lord is, if we haven't sufficiently grasped who He is, if we're not grateful for what He has done for us, our praise can be anemic and it can be weak. And that's why all true worship is strengthened by truth about God. For when we comprehend who He is, then we can honor Him as He deserves. And Psalm 135 is designed to remind and to encourage believers in true worship by setting before us truth about our God and what He has done for us that motivates us to praise Him. And so here, in Psalm 135, the psalmist, he stands in the temple calling on the temple workers, calling on the priests, calling on the Levites to join the king and all of the congregation in praise to God. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Now let me stop. I know we're not a Pentecostal church, but when I say praise the Lord, when you read praise the Lord, you can say hallelujah, because hallelujah is translated praise the Lord. So he starts with an exclamation, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the name of the Lord, give, give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Do you feel it deep down in your bones? You see, this is a constant refrain over and over in the Psalms. If you look back at Psalm 52 in verse 9, it tells us that praising the name of the Lord is good. If you look forward to Psalm 147, in verse 1, we're told that praising the Lord is good. But here in Psalm 135, in verse 3, we're reminded that the Lord Himself is good. The Lord is good. And the very first temptation of the evil one against the human race was designed to promote doubts in our souls that the Lord is good. And so it's not surprising then that the beginning of true praise is to fully embrace the goodness of God. And the psalmist here says, Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters, the congregation of God's people. Praise the Lord, for He is good. His name is good. He is good. Praising His name is good. In your circumstances, right now, do you believe that the Lord is good? Yes. yes. Because that is one of the challenges that we face in life. To believe that God is good in any and every circumstance. Especially the hard ones. You see, because in good circumstances, we're tempted to take our delight from those circumstances rather than the one who gave us those circumstances. 
And in bad circumstances, we're tempted to doubt the goodness and the wisdom of God who has placed us in the middle of those circumstances. In the book of Job, Job, Job announces those battles in his own experience. Job doesn't question whether or not God is in his control, God is in control. Job questions whether he can see the goodness of God in that control. And so here, the psalmist, he urges us to praise the Lord, for he is good. And you can't do that unless you believe that. And we're told in Psalm 34 and verse 8 to taste and see that the Lord is good. So how do we believe it? We are to taste and see that the Lord is good. That means in every circumstance, we trust Him. And by doing so, we will experience and we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is good. And then he goes on and he urges us to praise the Lord because in His goodness, in His goodness, God chose you and God chose me. Look again at verse 4. He says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. This is a staggering thing to think about, that the Lord has chosen you, that the Lord has chosen me for his own possession, for his own heritage. You see, based on Scripture, if you were to ask, Lord, why is it that you did all of this? What did you want out of sending your son into the world? What did you want out of his perfect life and his experience of the curse of sin and pouring out your wrath on him and his death and his burial and his resurrection? What was it that you, you wanted out of this plan that is stretched across all of human history from Adam until the very end of your redemption? And the scriptures in this passage here in particular says that the Lord will look you in the eye and he'll say, what I wanted was you. I wanted you. I chose you to be mine, to belong to me. You're the inheritance that I want. You're the heritage that I want. You're the possession that I want. I'm going to give you everything in Christ, my son, but you are the one that I want. I want you. Now, if you're even beginning to understand this, it's got to just take your breath away. I know for me personally, it wasn't until the reality of God choosing me for himself, not because of anything I had done or anything I could ever do in the future, that I began to just barely understand and appreciate the amazing grace of God. The Apostle Paul, ever since his dramatic conversion, he made much of the truth of God's calling. For he realized that the reason he was even a believer was because God had called him, not because he had decided for God. And do you revel in that truth that you wouldn't even be a Christian if God hasn't chosen you? That you wouldn't be in glory forever if God hadn't set his love on you from before the foundation of the world? The psalmist here, he's saying that we need to praise God because we love Him because He first loved us. You see, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws Him. And so He chose us, and we're to praise the Lord for His goodness in doing that. The Apostle Paul, he wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, and verses 3-6, through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, in which He has blessed us in the Beloved." 
So, we praise God because He is good and because He has chosen us for Himself. And then the second thing is, there's the second thing, we look at verse 5 through 7. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. So we see a second thing here. First, we praise the Lord for he, because He's good, because He's chosen us for Himself. Secondly, we praise the Lord because He is great and He is sovereign over everything for us. As the psalmist will make clear later on, these pagan nations, they worshipped these false gods that could do nothing. But in stark contrast, we worship a God, the Lord, who does whatever He pleases in heaven and on earth. The Lord, the sovereign creator of the heaven and heavens and the earth and the sea and all of the depths. He controls the clouds and the lightning and the rain and the wind. And he has absolute and total control over everything that he has made. Nature responds to his every command. Think about verse 6 for a moment. Look at it again. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Have you ever heard a more sweeping declaration in one sentence of the sovereignty of God than that? Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. The most repeated phrase in the Westminster Confession of Faith is, It pleased the Lord. It pleased the Lord. Over and over again, the divines emphasize that the Lord did what He pleased. And where did they get that idea? Well, from all of Scripture... But this is one important place right here in verse 6 of Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. He is absolutely sovereign in this world, and that leads us to praise Him. Why? Why do we do that? Because God's pleasure is always consistent with the welfare of His people. It's always consistent with their good. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. This is the Old Testament declaration of that truth, that God does what He pleases, and the psalmist knows that what God pleases is always good for His people. And so he calls on us to praise the Lord, for He is sovereign and because He is good. And that brings us now to a third thing. Look at verses 8 through 14. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. So we see a third thing. Again, first, we, we praise the Lord for He's good and because He has chosen us for Himself. Secondly, we praise the Lord because He's great and He's sovereign over everything for us. And thirdly, we praise the Lord because He is gracious. He is gracious. And He calls on us to praise the Lord because He's gracious in saving us. And He speaks of this dramatically in recounting the redemption of the children of Israel from Egypt. It was He 
who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. It was he who defeated the Ammonites and the Canaanites and gave you the land as your heritage and brought you across the Jordan into that land. It was the Lord who redeemed you. It was the Lord who saved you. And in response to this recounting and this remembrance of God's gracious acts, the psalmist, he breaks forth into praise of the Lord's name that endures forever and the Lord's reputation, which will endure through all generations. And once again, we're reminded that there is no God like our God. He is mighty, and His name is mighty, and He will never be forgotten. And the Lord will vindicate His people, and He will have compassion on His servants. Now, these verses, they allude back to Exodus chapter 3 in verse 15 and back to Deuteronomy chapter 32 in verse 36, which says, For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining, bond or free. You see, this is compassion on the undeserving. This is pure grace showered on his rebellious people that deserve the dire circumstances that they found themselves in. And we shouldn't miss this part. In verses 13 and 14, they look to the future while the previous verses look to the past. As James Boyce says, the God who has been gracious in the past will continue to vindicate his people and have compassion on them in the days yet to come. In Psalm 136, which is the companion psalm to Psalm 135, there's a constant refrain, and it says that God's steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love endures forever, over and over. And what we see is that God is forever good, and God is forever great, and God is forever gracious, and that there is no God like our God, and we should never forget that. And we are to praise Him for that. And then he goes on to contrast this mighty God, and in verse 15 through 18, he says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So we see a fourth thing here. Again, when we praise God because He is good and He chose us for Himself. And we praise the Lord for He's great and He is sovereign over everything for us. And we praise Him because He is gracious to save us. And the fourth thing here is that we praise the Lord for He alone is God. He alone is God. And so he contrasts our sovereign God now with these idols here in verses 15 through 18. These idols are nothing. And he makes a very important statement that we need to dwell on here for just a minute. Those who make them will be like them. So do all who trust in them. It's like we said back in discipleship in step three when we were going through the songs of ascent. We become like what we worship. And the psalmist is saying that here. Who you worship determines what you become. Those who worship sports teams can become dejected and riot when their team loses or even when they win. Those who worship politics can become impossible to be around as their lives become about whatever the current issue is and not the love of Christ. And ultimately, those who worship themselves become like these blind, deaf, voiceless idols that are made by human hands. And commenting on this truth, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this, Idolaters are spiritually dead. They're the mere images of men. Their best being is gone. 
Their mouths do not really pray. Their eyes do not see the truth. Their ears hear not the voice of the Lord. And the life of God is not in them. Can anybody relate to that? You should say yes, because it's you and it's me much of the time. You see, what you think of God, whether you worship the true God or a false God, it will determine what you become. There's a quote from A.W. Tozer who meditates on this very point nearly a decade, uh, nearly a century ago. And I want to read that to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but bear with me. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that comprise the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And we need to hear this today because God has become inconsequential for so many of us today. You see, you either worship the true God and you know Him in all of His glory, His goodness, His election, His sovereignty, His redemption, or you worship a God that you've made up in your own mind. You may have never taken gold or silver and fashioned an idol out of it and, and bowed down before it, but if you've created a God of your own invention, you are no less an idolater. And no God but the true God is worthy of our worship. No God but the true God is capable of satisfying you because you were made in the image of the one true God. And no substitute will do. So therefore, when, when we choose to worship idols, it will not lead us to be more. It will lead us to be less, to the point of spiritual nothingness. And so the psalmist says here, those who make them will become like them. And so do all who trust in them. And he's setting this challenge before us. Worship the true God. Know the true God. And that's why we must go to the scriptures, because he tells us what he's like in his word. He doesn't give us license to make it up as we go along. We go to Him and we learn from Him, from His Word, and we worship the true God, not a God of our own invention. And all of this, once we get to that point, all of that leads us then to a natural response. And that natural response of knowing the true God is the expression of praise. So if we don't have that, that heart welling up to praise, we have to ask ourselves, do, do we know who this true God is? And so let's look at that response in verses 19 through 21. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. I said it. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So again, we're to praise Him because He's good and He's chosen us for Himself. We're to praise Him because He's great and He's sovereign over everything for us. And we praise Him because He is gracious to save. And we praise the Lord because He alone is God. 
And what we see when we understand that, what we see is the response to that. That's what's going on here. The singers of Israel, the congregation of Israel, the Levites and the priests and those who are attending in the house of the Lord, they're all exhorting one another. They're calling each other out to praise the Lord. House, house of Doug, praise the Lord. House of Jim, praise the Lord. We are all to encourage one another. House of Mike, praise the Lord. And so we see here that there's this importance in encouraging one another to praise God and to the corporate worship of God because so often our hearts can become sluggish and we don't praise Him as we should. An old theologian, uh, William Plummer, he wrote this. And listen to this sentence. It's a sad and convincing indictment of our fallenness, that the inspired authors of Scripture must constantly incite us to an activity to which we are criminally indisposed. What a sentence, right? He goes on to say, Surely the angels in heaven need no such exhortation to worship the one who created them. Plummer's saying, Why in the world do the authors of Scripture have to tell us over and over again to worship God, to praise the Lord? It's because we're fallen. It's because we're sinful. It's because we're turned in on ourselves. And we have this tendency to, to worship ourselves instead of worshiping God. But over and over they tell us. Over and over they exhort us. Now, of course, we must have times of solitary prayer and praise. Just like Jesus retreated to a deserted place or he climbed the, the hills for communion with his Father. We all need that alone time with God. But solitude is meant to strengthen us and bring us to a place where we can bless and we can serve those around us. It's to bring us here, to places like this in Scripture where we need the fellowship in our worship. And God made us. He's made us as communal beings. And we need the support of others that are fallen, just like ourselves as we approach our holy and gracious God. We need the encouragement of others that are aspiring to follow Him. And we need the guidance of men and women who are sold out to Jesus in our praise to God as we bring that praise to Him. You see, we rarely think about how much we depend upon one another in our worship. Maybe we appreciate those who sing, or those who teach, those who exhort, those who can in inspire, but we hardly realize how much we owe to worshipers that are as limited and as sinful as ourselves. You see, there are parts that we can and we should do separately, as God has gifted each one of us, but we all can and should participate in praising God together. And so that's why we need to encourage one another to praise Him. Anytime someone tells you the good news of God's provision for him or for her, it ought to be an opportunity for you to encourage them to praise the living God. When we think about Matt Tracy, who... Matt's in my GC, and for the last two months, going through what he's gone through, I can honestly tell you, I, I couldn't say that he would be home today. And when I think about that, the only response I have is, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God is good. God is great. God is gracious. I mean, and it's right there in our midst, right before our eyes. And we need to encourage one another in praising God when we see those things. And when we're tempted by discouragement not to praise Him, then we need to encourage those who we know and love the most and those who know and love us the most. We need to encourage them with the words of Job. Though He slay me, yet I will praise Him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be 
the name of the Lord. And how do we do that? How do we praise the goodness of God when bad things happen or we find ourselves in these bad circumstances? And, and the answer can only be found in the fact that our sovereign God has shown us His heart at the cross. It's here that God's greatest good came out of the earth's worst tragedy. It's at the cross of Jesus that we learn that God is good and that He can be trusted even when everything seems wrong to our own understanding. It's at the cross that we see that God is great because He alone has demonstrated power over death and life. And it's at the cross that we see that God is gracious because He died the death that we deserved to give us His righteousness that we don't deserve. Confidence in God's promises of ultimate good can only be found in the cross of Jesus. You see, His agony didn't indicate that God had failed or that His faith was weak. His suffering, caused and inflicted by evil, still was within God's will. And it served a purpose so loving, so powerful, and so good that our eternity changed as a result of it. It's been said that through Jesus' resurrection, we learn that God's, God has power over evil. But through the cross, He gains power over our hearts. We praise Him not because we can explain our circumstances, but because God has revealed His character at the cross. The one who has shed His blood for us can be trusted to love us. The one who was pleased to give His life for us can be trusted to provide what is best for us. And the one who purposed all of this before the foundations of the earth were laid can be trusted to direct our paths to glory. He alone, He alone is worthy of our praise. This would be a good time for a hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> okay. Psalm 135, it wasn't just for the Levites, it wasn't just for the priests, or not just for those who were officiating in the house of the Lord. It's a psalm for the whole congregation of God's people. It's a psalm for all of us. And so may we go and praise the Lord for His goodness, the fact that He chose us, and for His greatness and sovereignly saving us from Himself. And may we praise the Lord because He is gracious, and He has been and He forever promises to be compassionate to us. And may we praise Him because He alone is God, and no substitute, no idol will bring us eternal life or the depth of joy that can only be found in His presence. So may we be a people that encourage one another as we gather together like this to praise the Lord in all of life's circumstances. I want to invite Aaron, our band, to come up. <clears throat> and I don't want him to throw his back out, so I'm going to do this. I'll probably throw my back out. That's what happens as you get older. As we come to a place uh, where we kind of wind things down, may we prepare our hearts to praise and worship God as we come to a place of celebrating communion and we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us as we take that cracker and we break it. We remember His body that was broken for us and we, we take the, the, the grape juice in this case and we remember His blood that was shed for us. May we contemplate God's goodness, His greatness and His grace who He is as God alone, who is worthy of our praise. And as we spend some time worshiping and, and, and meditating on who God is, our response should be that of praise. 
And it should be that of giving God all that we have. And part of that is giving of our tithes and our offerings. We don't pass a plate here, but we have um, offering boxes uh, all around the room here. And we give back to God because He has blessed us with so much. And so we give back a little of what He's blessed us with and what He deserves. And I don't know about you, but more than I want to admit, my praise can often be weak, can be anemic. God has blessed me with so much, and I can often take that for granted. I can, I can just revel in the circumstances and not the giver of those circumstances at times. And so I don't know about you, but if you're feeling that today, you know, we want to encourage you to maybe talk to somebody about that, and we want to be able to pray with you about that. Maybe you find yourself in a circumstance where uh, 2022 is a bit uncertain. Maybe there's some challenges in your life, and you find, you find it maybe difficult to see God in the midst of those. We want to encourage you in that as well. That God is good in the midst of those circumstances. That God is great, and He is gracious, and He will see you through those times. And so if you would like prayer, you want to talk to somebody about that, go see Sarah at the Welcome Center, and she'll connect you with one of us who would love to pray with you. So let's pray now. Our Father, thank you once again for reminding us of who you are. There is no God like you. There is no God other than you. Father, your goodness and your grace and your greatness, it, it just, it's astounding, Lord. It's amazing. It, it's just... For us to just get a glimpse of it, Lord, will just bring us to our knees where we should be because you deserve all of our praise, all of our worship. You alone are God. You alone are great. Thank you for being so good to us. May we praise you and worship you, Lord, as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.